Hey everybody, welcome to 2024. Brian Doe here, and we're happy to have you back on Make the Doe Rise. We had a good year in 2023, and I think even better is coming in 2024. Today, we're going to talk about what's happening with the markets, the Fed. It's an election year, and we're going to talk about a little bit of goal setting as well and how you can apply these to make 2024 all that you want it to be. So stay tuned. I think you're going to enjoy the episode. It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Hey, welcome to another edition of Make the Dough Rise. Walter Storholt here alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Living Worth Wealth Advisors with more than two decades of financial planning experience and a practicing certified financial planner for now more than a decade. Brian, you officially passed that decade mark uh, with us now turning the calendar page to 2024. So congrats on that. And I hope you had a great holiday season and new year and uh, you're ready to kick 2024 off to a good start. Yeah, it was Great end of the year. Uh, a lot of a lot of positives happen. The market uh, finishing up nicely. Uh, looks like maybe there's some positive news regarding inflation and what the Fed's going to do this year. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, can't can't complain about about anything really. Uh, it's great to hear. Yeah, uh, same on this boat. Did a, a lot of traveling in December, so I'm ready to settle back in just a little bit and, and not be on the road so much. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we we wore out the travel last year, so we did. We stayed home and nice. Didn't really do anything uh, adventurous this year, and it was it was nice to be able to spend time with family and be at home and and be a little more settled. So it was good. Sometimes it's nice to pump the brakes just a little bit, but we won't be pumping the brakes on the podcast. In fact, we're taking an outlook to 2024 with a little bit of a rearview mirror peek at what happened in 2023 to help guide us a little bit. Brian, this must have been a tough episode for you, or maybe not tough at all, I guess, depending on the perspective, just because... I'm thinking there's so many different directions and so many different ideas you could take into the episode today, trying to figure out what to talk about as we think about 2024, with it being an election year, and uh, just all sorts of different things on the horizon this year. So where where is your mind focused uh, on today's episode and as we kind of preview what to expect in 2024? Yeah, I, th- I think today is going to be uh, pretty easy, and I hope everybody enjoys it. I did get, I have been getting a lot of positive feedback from listeners to we had an open house over the holidays at the office, uh, kind of a party, it, and a couple of people said, "Hey, I've really been enjoying the podcast. Keep that up." So that was nice to hear. And I got some emails uh, from people that, that that said they enjoyed certain episodes. So today is a little more um, nuts and bolts for me. Stuff I think about continuously, and and I it was actually fairly easy to put together. But I want to talk about what we're going to do investment strategy wise. I hate to give predictions on what the market's going to do or what interest rates may or may not do, uh, because that's that's kind of a fool's errand, as we've seen. Even the the people who do that professionally and, and for a living rarely get it right. But there are some things that have happened in the portfolios, uh, things that are metrics or valuations that we can look at that are optimistic going forward that I think if over, rather than trying to make a hard prediction, I'll say, let's say over the next year or two, these trends, these phenomenon should occur. And if that does, you know, who's going to benefit? How do you position yourself to take advantage of that? And uh, you know, we can always do with the review mirror, I can give you a very concise recap of what has happened. And that definitely informs what's 
may happen or, or could happen in the future. So we'll, we'll, we'll do our best at it. But um, I think overall, uh, it's going to be a productive year for the particular strategy I'm, I'm deploying for most of my clients. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all of this with you, Brian. So without further ado, let's get to it. And do you want to start back with a little bit of a look at, uh, at 2023 before turning the page? Yeah, one of the big things that's been happening, and it may be a phenomena of the technology and scale that you get from having very dominant platforms. But if you looked at the winners for the S&P 500, it was very narrowly focused. You had certain technology stocks. Uh, NVIDIA was was the big one, up you know, 180, uh, over 180% for the year. Uh, Facebook had a huge recovery, was now called Meta, but um, part of that recovery was off of a big drop the previous year. And then uh, Tesla, Adobe, AMD, you're hearing a lot of technology names, semiconductors specifically, and it, it was just a very, very narrow year for the behavior of, of, of certain stocks. So what's happened is, is a lot of the names deeper into the indexes aren't you know, have not participated in the recovery and growth. And so you may see that begin to broaden out. There's some small cap value stocks, high dividend stocks that haven't participated so much. They haven't gone down. They haven't been beaten up horribly. They're not as volatile as the growth stocks. But um, we've definitely seen this, this narrow down into fewer and fewer, what I would call a winner take all type environment. Okay, very good. So that kind of lays the lays an interesting path for the year ahead, doesn't it? Well, it does. And and again, looking in the review mirror, I was looking at different indexes. I think everybody's familiar with the S and P five hundred index. Uh, you've probably heard about the Nasdaq, uh, which tends to be more growth companies and technology companies. And and I wanted to emphasize why if if you're not making individual stock choices, if you're doing more indexing, broad market indexes, and you're holding those for long periods of time, that strategy has actually worked very well in spite of the feeling that you haven't really done anything. You, you, you can buy an index in 2000, let's say, and, and if you held it for 23 years, the indexes are constantly being reconstituted. They're based on the market cap of the companies. And for the most part, the, the Dow's a little different. I, I won't get into why the Dow's a bad index right now, but just the, the S&P 500 is market cap weighted. Uh, the NASDAQ does, does something similar with the top 100 companies that, that trade on the NASDAQ exchange. But when I was looking back in 2000, if you had bought the NASDAQ 100, some of your top holdings in that index were Cisco, Intel, JDS Uniphase, Microsoft was in there, Oracle, Sun Microsystems, Qualcomm, Nextel, Dell Computer, and uh, Veritas and Siebel. There were a couple of names that were uh, also in there. I mean, you don't hear much about a lot of those you still obviously yeah. microsoft and cisco around but uh, uh some of those have fallen off the you know the radar entirely and now your top holdings in the nasdaq are apple microsoft google amazon nvidia meta tesla and broadcom 
So you, you've seen almost a, yeah, with one or two names uh, remaining, almost a total reformulation at the top end of the NASDAQ 100. And so if you did not have a crystal ball back then, if you did not know who was going to be the big leaders in the NASDAQ, by owning and buying the index and holding it over a long period of time, those winners rose and, and they became a larger part of the index, but you participated in that. And uh, you know, whether you picked these individual names or not, you did have exposure to them by having by having the NASDAQ 100 in there. So, so very good. And the same thing, uh, if, if you look at the S&P 500, if you go back to 2003 is, is, is where this was example was taken. Some of your top holdings were Walmart, General Motors, Exxon, Ford, GE, Citigroup, IBM, and Chevron. You can you can tell that list is going to change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very a lot of industrials and um, uh, energy, financials, technology, you know, total transformation. Well, now the top holdings in the S and P five hundred are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Nvidia, Meta, Tesla, which is an almost identical overlap with the Nasdaq 100. Berkshire Hathaway makes a showing here. So so it I think that really highlights how both of those indexes have just become very top heavy, very dominant by those few tech names. And whether you owned one or both of them, you have have participated and and benefited from the growth of these these big new names. The problem I see here, the one problem I see is that there is tremendous overlap now between these two indexes. So if you're if you're holding all NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 index, you probably have a diversification issue that that needs to be addressed. But uh, and nonetheless, I th thought it was interesting exercise to go back and look at how how much the names have changed in those top indexes and how now both of them are, are fairly dominant in the same few tech companies. Yeah, that overlap is certainly uh, very easy to see. Uh, for those that are, are audio listeners, you're not seeing the graphics that uh, we're kind of discussing here, but uh, it looks almost like a mirror image of now the S&P and the NASDAQ on, on that 2023 metric. And it's interesting, that wasn't a problem back in 2000, 2003. There's not any overlap really at all between mm -hmm. those two indexes. So that's a pretty stark difference of, of how 20 years has really shaped that. Yeah, and I think if you're wanting to maintain the diversification, or there's some, actually some very easy ways to to round out this list. Uh, again, by throwing in a high dividend or a, a small cap value uh, exchange traded fund or something like that, uh, which, as we'll talk about in a little bit, looks like a very attractive place to to be putting money by buying on low valuations, getting good dividends. Uh, you can very nicely round out this list and you don't have to incur a lot of capital gains by selling off your your other big indexes if you've been holding them for long periods of time. Uh, that That is the beauty. You're You're still in charge of capital gains. All good points across the board. Now, I'm curious, Brian, because we've been hearing for multiple years now that, you know, oh, we're going to have a recession, we're going to face it. And it's starting to feel like, okay, sure, someone's going to be right when, you know, that broken clock twice a day, or if you just predict the same thing to happen every year, eventually you'll be right. So is is this the year for that? It, it's kind of like Chicken Little. The, the right. sky is falling. The sky is falling. We've, we've been hearing, you know, for two, solidly two years, oh, the recession's coming, there's a big recession coming. You know, it, we've had some events transpire 
volatility with the market. There were some uh, the big bank failures that we had for a while. Uh, we had the supply chain issues, getting all that worked out after COVID. You've seen different employment layoffs and, and things happen in different sectors, but none of it, all of those things did not happen at one time. And so some would argue that we have slow rolled the you know, recessionary trends in a way that is looking more like a soft landing or maybe a uh, recessionless real recovery from the, the market pullback of 2022. And, you know, averages are, are nice and they're interesting. And, and it looks like that's definitely the track we're on. But we, yeah, we've been hearing that, that a recession is coming, but the Fed action, raising interest rates, uh, reducing money supply, uh, making borrowing a little more expensive has definitely caused, you know, weaker companies to not be able to access, you know, free money, cheap capital. Uh, so that that weeds out some of the weaker players for sure. And we are seeing inflation begin to subside. In fact, the uh, industrial sector, the durable goods sector, let's say, you know, like uh, heavy refrigerators, washing machines, uh, you know, maybe cars and things like that. We're actually seeing deflationary forces in those prices. Now, I know everybody that's paying the bills, going to the grocery store, buying gas. We're, we're not seeing it yet. But Kathy Wood had been talking for some time that our bigger problem on the other side of this cycle was going to be deflation. And she may turn out to be to be quite right here because we're, we're beginning to see it in, in the dur durable goods space. Interesting to see how maybe that comes to fruition in 2024, but also some of the other, you know, uh, concerns of it being an election year can kind of throw all of that out of the out of the <laughs> equation, right? So, best laid plans sometimes get disrupted during these uh, these times. So, yeah, yeah, a lot of people may think, oh, if, if prices are going down, and this this is the fear or problem with deflation is if things are getting cheaper, everybody that since let's say everybody concludes at the same time prices are going to be cheaper for furniture next year nobody's going to buy furniture and you're they're going to wait because they're going to be able to get more for their their money in the future so if you think inflation is bad deflation can throw a, a monkey wrench into the economy you know far worse than than inflation because it it can cause even more extreme behaviors uh, where people stop spending and that, that can actually grind an economy to a halt, to a halt too, which would be interesting in, a, in an election year if you had some you know, very wild economic forces like that. But um, 2024 will shape up, I'm sure, to be a wild ride on the political front. I don't know how they're, th this whole primary season's going to shake out, if it's going to be a rematch with you know Trump and Biden or if somebody else is going to step in and they're going to do some switcheroos in the middle of the year but a, a capital group put out a really interesting piece that looked back at past election years and and said hey what what has happened what what parties are best for the market what behaviors uh, have worked out and strategies have worked out the best i thought it was helpful to go back and look at it because the and again, we've got a very good graphical piece here. If somebody wants a copy of this or wants me to share, I can um, just give me a shout or shoot me an email and I'll, I'll, I'll send you a copy of this. 
but it said, which political party has been better for investors, Republicans or Democrats? And you could look at this growth chart, you know, going back to 1933, and it's hard to find a pattern in there that says any particular administration was bad for the market. Uh, overall, the, the stocks have trended up regardless of whether Republicans or, or Democrats were in office. Maybe different sectors benefited or certain you know, industries or things like that had, had better performance under certain administrations. But again, if you were just broad S&P 500 index investor, there was not a particular party that you could say was, was damaging or negative to stocks. And, and so the, the lesson there is just tune out all the, a lot of the political noise. It's actually not going to be productive as far as uh, choosing a strategy for your portfolio. It's really interesting to look at that and the uh, the, the difference or the not difference that some of those things make sometimes. And it has a lot of people wondering what's what's going to be the best way to invest in the new year. But it's not just kind of the election that makes noise, but uh, the Fed is always in the news at least that once a month, right? When they decide what to do with <laughs> with rates, and I don't see that going away. That phenomenon going away in twenty twenty four. Yeah, technically the Fed's supposed to be apolitical, but um, you know, I, you're, you're seeing Janet Yellen working at Treasury now, and the, the, there, there's kind of an overlap or revolving. Nothing's apolitical, right? Right, right. So it's it, hopefully they remain as as independent as possible. But um, yeah, if you if you look back on if if you're trying to develop a trading strategy based on what happens during an election year. The primary season tends to lag or be more volatile than non-election years. So again, I'm not advocating that anybody make a short-term trade or short the market or do anything like that. But the first few months of the year could see a drag on the market because of the uncertainty with the primary phase of the market, depending on what candidates and, and issues are being brought up. But where I see that being an opportunity is a lot of people are heavy in money market. We've, we've had very good returns on money market uh, yields lately. So it's been a very attractive place to get a nice, you know, solid return and take minimal risk. And, and the market has, has bounced up here in this past quarter. So some people may say, hey, have I missed it? You know, what, uh, what do I do with all this money market? Well, I see the first quarter of next year being a very good opportunity to rotate out of the money market and begin to add money to the market. And then after the primary season, historically, the market has you know, trended back up uh, in line with the, the normal historical rates or maybe even increased at a, at a slightly higher rate for the remainder of, you know, the, let's call it one year past the end of the primary season. So bottom line there was primary seasons tend to be volatile, but markets have bounced back strongly thereafter. Good to know. All right. So lots of good takeaways so far from this 2024 kind of outset and prediction and things to keep an eye on. Uh, what else is jumping out to you as you think about the year ahead? Well, they were looking at sectors, uh, which okay. which sectors have done the best in election years. So if you want to try and uh, you know, make a overweight in your portfolio to a particular sector, again, I was looking at the you know data and I would say ov overwhelmingly one year before an election tends to be poorer performance than one year after an election. And 
by sector, it really didn't matter. I'd say utilities were about a dead dead heat uh, before or after elections. And energy, financials, and, and maybe infotech had the biggest variance, tending to be better after the election and doing worse before the election. But again, the pattern is very much the the year before the election, the uncertainty, it weighs on the market, people are, are cautious. And, and then, you know, once the new administration's in and we know what's going to happen, you know, they say markets don't like uncertainty. So once you have some certainty about what's going to happen, people tend to feel better and then and you'll have better returns once the election's over. So again, that that gives us the you know, first quarter to half of next year to put cash back to work and uh, you know, figure out where we're going to go if rates begin to come down on on money markets. Okay, that's very good. So sectors are a big thing. What about as we look at all of these different angles to approach the new year? Do you see people making mistakes when they're trying to read these tea leaves that then give you a little bit of concern? Yeah, I mean, clearly it's too much cash, too much cash in money market. Okay. And, and if you look at the cycle we're in with the Fed, interest rates are up. Borrowing costs are up. If you're trying to you know, buy a house or, or get a mortgage, obviously, you know, your, your rates are significantly higher. So it's more expensive to do that. But the positive, the flip side of that is everybody sitting on cash can now earn, you know, five, five and a quarter, five and a half percent on, on money market. And so that that becomes a very attractive place to be. And Add to that the uncertainty, nervousness about what's happening with the economy, the markets, the election cycle. People tend to get too conservative and put too much money. Fund flows into money markets ramp up during election years. And uh, then again, once things settle down, people will come back to the markets. And that's a mistake. That, that's absolutely a, a mistake to make. If you looked at um, moving into cash during election years, that, that that's very rarely a, a winning strategy. And so they broke it down of the, the best ways to invest in election years. And so option one is remain fully invested. Option two is consistently make contributions, dollar cost average, you know, through the market. And option number three is sitting on the sidelines. Walter, what do you think was the best strategy for dealing with the uncertainty of an election year? Well, I'm going to say not sitting on the sidelines because it seems like you always steer people away from that. Yeah, overwhelmingly, if you had started with uh, $10,000 in each of these examples and had an ending value uh, after a four-year holding period, the four, and this would be 10,000 on January 1st of the election year. 10 years later, staying fully invested would have grown from 10,000 to $15,865. Dollar cost averaging, and so you would uh, continue to invest 1,000 for each of the first 10 months of the election year. 10,000 grew to 15,738, so not, not too far behind staying fully invested. And sitting on the sidelines, if you're nervous about how the elections are going to affect markets, and you wait until January 1st after the election results are in to invest your 10000 that grows to $14,936. So clearly, staying fully invested or dollar cost averaging into the face of the uncertainty was the winning strategy overwhelmingly. Uh, there were only three of 22 cycles where sitting on the sidelines was the best option. Hmm. 
interesting that that's the that that's the case. Um, but but not so much on the sitting on the sideline part not paying off, but that you, you can have success in either of the other the other realms uh, is pretty interesting to see. Well, and interestingly, all three are winning strategies. Okay, like none of them did you harm, right? But doing the one that maybe frightens you the most uh, consistently was the best best strategies. Yeah. Huh. How about that? All right. What else jumps out to you? Well, so I, I think what we're going to see moving away from election uh, politics and all that stuff, what the Fed does is going to have a big impact on what well, has had a big impact and will always have a big impact on, on what values are out there, what the markets are going to do, what happens to bonds, what happens to stocks, high dividend stocks. And overwhelmingly, we're hearing people say, and and uh, you know, we're always getting updates and announcements from the Fed. But it looks like we are at the end or nearing the end of the rate hike cycles. And looking forward, a lot of people think next year and into 2025, we will see a lot of these rates cut that have been increased so rapidly uh, over the past you know, year, year and a half. And if that happens, what you will see is your bond prices come back. We, we suffered a big setback in bond prices when interest rates shot up. And so that's really been a drag on, on conservative portfolios. It's also why we're able to get such good yields off of money market right now. But if rates begin to come back down, your high yields on money markets will come down with it. And your bond prices for longer maturity bonds will go back up and you'll, you'll begin to see some appreciation in the price of your bonds. Where I think it will even have a, a big impact as well is on high dividend stocks. We are at a situation where the valuations for high dividend paying stocks is way below its historical average. Now, high dividend stocks tend to sell at a little bit of a discount to the market anyway. They're a little more boring. They don't grow as fast, but man, they're great for good income. The dividends are treated uh, preferentially for tax purposes. And historically, they are selling at about a 12.9% discount to on a, on a PE base, price to earnings basis to the S&P 500. Well, right now they're selling at about a 25 to 26% uh, discount to the S&P 500. So uh, again, going back to that earlier analysis we did on the broad market ETF indexes, if you've gotten have top heavy in all of those tech names, this is the perfect complement to round out that portfolio. So if you have dollars sitting on the sidelines in and or in money market and you're getting a good good dividend, you think that dividend may be coming to an end over the next, you know, 12, 24 months, well, you can go buy a you know, something like the Schwab High Dividend Exchange Traded Fund. And it pays about a three and a half to three point eight percent dividend, depending on which day you check the price. So you're getting paid a good dividend to own those types of companies. But if these valuations come back to normal, you could see nice appreciation in price from, again, good quality, profitable, established companies uh, that as rates go down, your yield on money market's going to go down with it. People that have been sitting in money market that didn't have the foresight and the uh, advantage of listening to this podcast, they're going to get caught flat-footed and then they're going to come running back into stocks 
later when it's it's already had you know a, a leg up on on movement and people say oh the, the high dividend stocks there's a good dividend yield there they've been shooting up lately man beat everybody to that cycle beat everybody to that to the trend move 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 away before the crowd does and and i think it'll uh it'll work out well for you obviously if that fits your goal if you if you need the cash if you have an emergency fund if you uh you just can't stomach the risk you disregard everything i just said but um I think if you're forward-looking and income-producing portfolios, that's what you want to do. Lots of different ways that we can set goals and plan for the future and kind of get ready for this new year. If somebody's looking for how to kind of take the next best steps, Brian, where do you uh, typically see yourself kind of steering people when they when they approach a new year like this? I think the first of the year is always a great time to reevaluate and, and set goals. And I know it's cliche and everybody sets there. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to get on the treadmill, you know, three days a week. And everybody abandons those, you know, by the end of the month in most cases. But I like to look a little further ahead and, and say, you know, what, what are my goals for the year? And begin to actually quantify them and get clear on what you're aiming at. Not some fluffy, I want to, you know, have more money or, you know, do more, you know, kind of vague, undefined things, but get get very specific about what you want to accomplish. And if you can put a person, a place, a name, a date, a quantity, or a number to it, you can get focused and develop a good a good strategy towards achieving that. And and I think uh, I think last time we talked about the positive focus. Remember, I was talking about looking backwards and measuring all the positives that that happened and reassessing how last year turned out for you. Well, the person that I got that from, again, was Dan Sullivan at, at Strategic Coach. Well, his goal setting uh, technique, it's more of a, I guess you, you would call it a, maybe a navigational tool to, to, to help you achieve goals. But he, he, he would have you write down a very specific goal. All right, so let's say, for example, I wanted to spend two weeks in Italy for my anniversary in November. Well, that's a great goal, but what your brain does is it immediately says, oh, it, it creates this gap of all the, why, how difficult that is to achieve or uh, why, why you, all the reasons why you can't do it. And if you take that negative energy or that ability to complain or, or list all the reasons why you can't accomplish it. Well, I don't have enough money. Well, I don't have, I can't get the time off or I can't, I can't get away because of this. If you list out all the obstacles to why you can't achieve that goal, this works beautifully because it goes straight to where your brain naturally wants to go. And that is all the excuses of why it's not going to happen. List those out. Don't, don't get don't don't say focused on this, you know, positive visualization manifest. I'm going to make this happen by no it, list the problems, list the obstacles. And once you've done that, then you can develop a strategy for each of those obstacles. Well, I don't have enough money. Well, all right. How could I solve that specific problem? Well, I could spend a little bit less. Maybe I could sell all this extra junk I've got in the garage in the basement, have a yard sale take some gains out of my portfolio, whatever it is. If you're able then to see where the money can come from, a little bit here, a little bit there, it starts to add up. 
and you can do one or two, three things. And, you know, pretty soon it becomes a more realistic goal. I don't have the time. I can't get away. Well, maybe we need to get somebody to watch the kids. Maybe we need to ask for some time off, corral some days off. All the reasons why you can't do it suddenly become almost small. It almost seems ridiculously easy once you get done with this. And I have seen this work with major life goals and and changes. I, I remember at one time I had a client going through a very significant life change event, let's just say. And I said, well, you know what, what, what would, if you, if you looked a year ahead, what would you like things to look like? Like what would be a successful resolution to this? She gave me a good answer. You know, it would be, it would look like this. It would have peace and harmony. It'd be settled here and there and, and whatever the, the case was uh, specific. I won't, I won't go into the, the details. I said, okay, tell me all the reasons why that can't happen. And boom, one, two, three, we had eight reasons why that was going to be difficult. And she was dealing with a, a significant amount of stress and, and overwhelm at this. And so I took the eight ideas and I said, well, you know, here's a couple that look very similar. This, these, these kind of revolve around the same issue. And I said, here's a couple that are, are related. And by the time we got done, we narrowed it down to about four or five real actual problems. And I said, now let's get another column and let's develop strategies for overcoming each one of those issues. And it was like, well, we could do this, this, and this, 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 this. And pretty soon it, it, she had some clarity, some vision about how to move past this uh, particular challenge and, and difficult time and what it looked like on the other side. And it was life changing and, and positive. And to, to this day, that's her, her favorite exercise. And, and she even talks about how you know, she, we went through that, uh, how much she uses it, shares it with her friends. And I, I've never actually really shared it on the podcast. And I definitely want to, you know, do want to give credit to Dan Sullivan for this uh, approach. But if you want to work that out, if you've got a specific goal that you want to accomplish, start with the obstacles. If you want some help understanding how those become the raw materials for transforming and, and creating success, uh, be happy to you know, share that or, or work with anyone else through that. So that, that's how I do it. And, uh, it, it's worked great. So you, if you had a positive year last year, you've tallied up all your, uh, wins for the year, man, get clear. What do you want to accomplish this year? Don't be, um, you know, too vague or general about it. Don't set too high expectations about short-term results, you know, around the, the fitness goals and, and all those things. No, find, find some cool stuff that you want to do, map it out, figure out what it's going to take to get there, figure out what stands in your way, and then then work around it. And uh, yeah, that's my advice for you. Fantastic. Well, we talked a lot about looking ahead on the show today and trying to talk about 2024 and the future uh, that this year will bring. And if you are looking to take control of that financial future in 2024, but not sure where to start, you can always let Brian Doe, a seasoned certified financial planner with more than 20 years of expertise, be your trusted partner. Whether that's wanting to create something like a solid retirement plan that we talk so often about here on the show, or if you want to receive some expert guidance on optimizing investments or perhaps avoiding costly tax traps, a common topic here on our show as well. Brian's got you covered in all those arenas and more. And don't forget, as a certified financial planner professional, it's an important designation because it means he meets the highest standards of education, training, and ethics 
always putting your best interests first. Really important metric in the financial planning world. So take advantage of a complimentary 15-minute call with Brian to get your year off to a good start. You can get clarity about those financial goals for this year and beyond and prepare for that more secure tomorrow. All you have to do is call today and pave the way to that financial success together. You can call 706-451-9800. Or the easiest method, go to livingworth.com. That's livingworth.com and click book a call. You'll see it there on the page. Just click book a call and you can schedule your time to visit and meet with Brian to talk about your goals and your financial future. Livingworth.com and click book a call. Great way to start off the new year on a solid planning note and uh, who, who doesn't want to better their finances every year and this is your chance to do that in the year ahead brian thank you so much for your guidance happy new year to you my friend and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you again next month yeah sounds great hope it was helpful yeah it surely was and interesting to see some of these comparisons data and what to expect in the year ahead don't hesitate to reach out if you ever have any questions for brian otherwise we'll see you next time right back here on make the dough rise Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.